This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selection reflects the best contemporary photography, all for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. And it's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember, use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also enjoy the support of photographer Chris Suspect, who is hosting his annual Day of the Dead Photography Workshop in Oaxaca, Mexico from October 28th through November 4th. Gain a wealth of photographic knowledge while amidst one of the country's most colorful and exciting cultural events. Learn more and reserve your spot by visiting chrissuspect.com forward slash day of the dead. That's chrissuspect.com forward slash day of the dead. I grew up in Los Angeles, the home of Hollywood. I was always thrilled whenever I visited a studio lot. I was fascinated by witnessing how people made television shows and movies that my brothers and I enjoyed. Even back then, I thought the coolest job would be the photographer who creates all those still images of all those things that were happening. I've met many photographers who do this kind of work, and despite its many challenges, they each find their approach their unique way of tackling the job. Karen Ballard brought her years of experience as a photojournalist and a street photographer to the table. Those practices have made her adept at getting the shot when time is limited and the pressure is on. She has shot stills for films and shows like James Bond, Quantum of Solace, Father Stew, The Morning Show, and Hacks. Karen is a great photographer and an excellent storyteller, making her so good at what she does. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. If there's anything you want to tell me before you hit record or... No, this is, I just jump into it. I love it. Awesome. So tell me about that. So it was, you get back to San Francisco. Yeah, so... Uh... 28 years ago, on May 20th, 1994, I was flown to San Francisco by the William Randolph Hearst Foundation to participate in the finals of their collegiate photojournalism competition. As luck would have it this year, uh, my good friend was going to be in San Francisco, and we hadn't seen each other since before the pandemic, so I decided to go celebrate my birthday with her, and I was like, wait. The Hearst was on a Friday too. This is totally, totally cool. I didn't, mm. you know, when we planned the trip, I hadn't really realized it was on that Friday. So got out there and there were three assignments during that competition. The hustle bustle of Market Street, a world within a world of Golden Gate Park, which is just enormous. And then a one, one shot that represented San Francisco. And so over this past weekend, we revisited both spontaneously and somewhat planned my my shoots. And it was just so much fun. And it brought back so many memories and my journey from 
those days, I, I, I won the competition mm -hmm. and I was awarded a $5,000 scholarship. My school got a matching grant and I went back to University of Kentucky, graduated a week later. I had a Washington Post internship already lined up. I spent the summer at the Post. I took some of that money and after my post internship, I went on a, uh, my first real epic journey by myself. I went to Europe for about seven weeks. Uh, I was cut short because I started my first job. I got offered my first newspaper job while I was in Europe at the Washington Times. And I came back a couple weeks early, but I traveled all through Western and parts of Eastern Europe loaded down with Kodachrome and Triax. And uh, it was a it was a great first epic journey for me. So yeah, so this past weekend, it was kind of like a flashback to where I was at that time. And uh, it ended up being a really special weekend. And you were you had just some wonderful momentum. Yeah, I did, man, I got started early. I was a photographer in high school, I literally was, you know, classic, I was a yearbook photographer. I had taken black and white photography early on. That would have been like 85, 86. I graduated high school in 87. I got into it pretty fast. My parents, my graduation present from high school was a Nikon camera body. That was a, you know, uh -huh. a, a big deal for me and our family. And, you know, some people get cars and whatnot. I got, I got my first real camera. That's awesome. Yeah. The ones I'd been using before were like my older brothers and, you know, hand-me-downs and things like that. Having the chance to look back, because the way you describe it is sort of a series of events. But whenever I look back at those things, I, I really kind of failed to appreciate what the experience really gave me. And I think that only comes back with mm. time. This recent trip, did, yeah. how did you look at it differently than, than you might have? You know, I, I had a pretty clear vision early on of what I wanted to do. I had no idea where it would take me, et cetera. But having time to look back on it, all I can think about really honestly is what a life I've led, how grateful I've been for my experiences, how hard I've worked and how I really haven't stopped. I mean, from that <laughs> moment, I mean, I just kind of been flying through life. Um, I mean, I, you know, I grateful, I guess, is the word I come back to. Is that always been part of your character? I think so. I, you know, I grew up with two older brothers. I'm the youngest. I was also the youngest of 12 cousins. My mom had four sisters and an incredible role model was my grandmother. She was an early executive who had started off on the assembly line at General Electric in Louisville. And she managed to get up into management and retire early. And she had a, a beautiful a uh, modest but cool home with a, a couple of acres and a pond in the backyard. And we had huge family gatherings growing up and I was the youngest. And so I think being around a lot of older people, cousins, brothers, aunts, uncles, that whatnot gave me a lot of, of character of who I am and my, the strength I had early on. I was the only girl on the guys' varsity soccer team. It was before they had girls' soccer. I went on to play the, my freshman year at University of Kentucky. So I was very athletic in high school. I was very grounded in team sports. So I think all that kind of played into my character, my strength, going for it, setting goals, that sort of thing. 
And that competitive nature certainly helps as a photographer. Oh, man, no question. I mean, I think being, again, growing up with the brothers and the cousins and the team sports and trying a little bit of everything. Funny enough, you say that. I mean, I back to the soccer thing. I, I started playing soccer as a kid, but just like in the community leagues because they didn't have girls leagues yet. There were certainly a handful of other girls playing on those teams. And then when I got to be a freshman in college, I mean, high school, there still wasn't high school girls soccer. And I wanted to go out for the guys team. And my dad just wasn't having it. My parents weren't having it. So I started immediately playing all of these other sports. And I may always made the team. I was, you know, I was in great shape. And I, you know, so I played basketball and volleyball and ran track, ran cross country, softball, but nothing ever hit because I really wanted to get back on the soccer field. And yet I kept pushing myself in all these other directions to, to try to find the passion for what I loved and full circle, let's get it back to photography. So ended up trying out, finally talked my dad into the spring of my junior year in high school. I quit the basketball team. I started playing soccer again, spent the summer with the University of Louisville women's soccer team. They had a conversation with the high school coach and suggested that they let me try out. And I did, and I made it. So anyway, that played senior year, went off to University of Kentucky, played on the women's team in the middle of the season, got hurt. I fell off a chair watching a tennis match and a pair of cleats <laughs> after practice one day. That was the end of my soccer career. And I picked up the camera from high school and my love for that. And I, uh, I had to drop out of school. And long story short, I took basically the next year off, what would have been my sophomore year. I went down and I worked at Disney World at <laughs> crazy stuff and just always had my camera with me, planned a trip cross country for my 20th birthday with two of the gals that I had worked at Disney World with. And I photographed the journey. And that was really it. I got to the coast of California after making all these stops cross country. And I told those girls I was going to go back to college and study photojournalism. I mean, it was as clear as day sitting on the West Coast, and I'm sitting here right now. <laughs> it's funny so, uh, how, how things happen, but so yeah. what happened during that trip? Because a lot of people, a lot of kids during that time, you know, will make a kind of cross-country trip and, you know, go out adventuring, making pictures like you did. Mm -hmm. But what mm -hmm. was so special about that experience that made you reaffirm that you loved this thing and you wanted to spend your life doing it? You know, I, th I think it was a, a variety of things that, that uh, it was, it was documenting the experience um, that I could share with others. I think I couldn't wait to get back and show those pictures to my family that our friends or whatever, like, look, you know, this is what the painted desert looks like, or this is like the coast of California, or we got stuck in snow in Lake Tahoe and our tent was, you know, our tent was covered, in, you know, with snow. And the night before it was a beautiful sunset or, and so it was, it was those early experiences of adventure and capturing it and then being able to take it back and share it with an audience, mm -hmm. I think was a lot of that. And when you entered the world of uh, photojournalism, what were some of the things that happened to you, you know, during college or even high school that you think it was a good thing that those things happened to you 
and sort of may have prepared you in some way for the world of being a photojournalist? Well, I studied journalism. I was fighting the art school and the journalism school. And that freshman year, before I dropped out for a year, I hadn't really decided. I was under the School of Communications. And then I took that year off. I had the big adventure. I lived in Florida. I lived in New Haven, Connecticut. And I lived on the road. And so those early things, I think, played into wanting to be a storyteller. My parents went through a divorce at that time. It was very emotional. I'm sure that played into my emotional state of wanting to, I guess, tell stories. I haven't really thought about it in the way you're asking it, but I would say what continued is education and growing intellectually as you do. And I was so blessed to grow up in Kentucky. What really, I think, were influences and kind of more pointed to what you're asking about experiences is that the Louisville Courier Journal was a fantastic photographic newspaper that I grew up with. And I used to sit on my parents' front porch and look at that Sunday magazine. Back when papers had Sunday magazines, like the pullout, kind of like a parade style, tabloid style, Mm -hmm. but it was fantastic in the 80s. They were like full-blown mini geographic stories about the state. And whether it was a tobacco farmer or a coal miner or whatever, the photographers at the Courier Journal were doing long form essays. And so that rang my bell right away. I always liked the long form essay. And then also Louisville Magazine was championed and and shot by one photographer, dear friend named John Nation. He shot long format photo essays. So starting to understand professional photojournalism came early and directly from those photographers. And then at University of Kentucky, I started taking journalism classes and learning about the Lexington photographers. And so I was taking classes in the journalism school. I did a liberal arts, you know, uh, grant, as you do as a journalist, array of classes in, you know, anthropology, autobiography, world politics, and, you know, just gaining all these different insights into the, the world and how it works and how you could document various aspects of it. And that really uh, excited me. And I was also taking classes in the art school. So I had this like two roads converge, I guess. And I ended up landing w- more in the journalism world at that time, shooting for the college newspaper, seeing they had a daily paper at, at, and they still do a terrific college newspaper, the Kentucky Colonel. After that year off, and I had that declaration on the beach in California, I went back and I had a picture of a fire that broke out in the city, somewhere in Lexington. I don't remember where, but it's a silhouette photograph. It ran four cobs, I think, on the front page of the college newspaper the first day of school when I was back. And I was off and running at that point. You know, I was like, there it is. This is what I'm doing. It's in print, photo by Kara Ballard. And that was, you know, I was off and running at that point. So Yeah, that that first uh, photo credit, it's quite, it's quite a moment. I think I still it have the... I sold an image to the San Francisco Examiner, which was one of the first pictures mm-hmm. that I shot on paper. I just, there had been some sort of demonstration in Berkeley who seemed to have it weekly when I was going there, some sort of demonstration. Sure. You know, I processed the film and then I walked, you know, 
caught the train over to the offices and showed them my contact sheet and they picked a picture and it was quite the moment. I'd had the experience in, sure. in college, but that was the first like quote unquote real newspaper that I right, right. got printed. Legitimized like, everything. It's like Yeah. Yeah. And I think for for me, one of the things that always intrigued me about photojournalism was it it gave me a key to open a door you know, to other people's lives exactly. and circumstances that I otherwise would never get. In some ways, I kind of do that with the show now, but I know that that was for me was the appeal. It gave me permission you know, to just talk to people who I otherwise would never talk to and to learn things that I otherwise wouldn't learn. Absolutely. That has fueled my career and my interest about being out in the world. And it started, you know, it did. It started in Kentucky. I mean, when I, I took anthropology, like my project was to go out and I spent a couple weekends. I don't remember how many now, but I found a, a story about a little red bus in Appalachia that taught folks out there how to get their GED and and lead them through their and you know I ended up focusing in on this woman named Ruby Laney who was like I think she was in her fifties but man she looked like she was in her seventies mm. she was from Hard Knock Holler I'm not kidding Wow Hard, Hard Knock, Knock Holler, Holler. And, yeah that's a place and you know I went home with her and hung out with her and her son and photographed all that stuff was in black and white and that was my kind of an early window also into really getting into something that was beyond where I had been before and bringing that back and learning about the symbolism of the red truck and that that bus was a place that these people could go and potentially change their lives or at least get their GEDs. That made sense to me, like understanding how symbolism can work in uh, a photograph, you know, and, and so that, that's just early stuff, you know, that, that happened when I was in school. And I went on to do a, several internships that were really like laid the groundwork for me. I interned um, at the Courier Journal and at the Eugene Register Guard, where I learned Chrome. I spent six months there. I was very into wanting to learn color. I specifically applied for that internship to go out west again and learn Chrome and at the Post. And then I also spent a summer at the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops. And that was, I think, um, the place that really has affected the variety of ways I've applied photography and worked on assignment because that summer I got away from the newspaper world a bit. And every week I assisted a different photographer from Sam Abel to Mary Ellen Mark, Sean Kernan, David Michael Kennedy, a fine art photographer, Karen Kuhn at the time was doing New York editorial portraits. Greg Gorman was there that summer when I was there. Eugene Richards was there. So I had like this like massive wow. introduction to a variety of photographers over the course of, I think it was nine weeks in Santa Fe. And that really just blew my world up. I was just like, oh my God, there's so much I didn't know. And now I do know. And what do I want to do with this? So what were the things that you discovered as a result? Um, that I didn't really just want to be a newspaper photographer. And that wasn't that I didn't admire that craft, nor was it the, the fact that I wasn't going to go do it. I still thought I would do that. But it opened my eyes up to all these different types of photography that existed in the editorial world that I wasn't as familiar with 
at that age at that time, including you know the world of portraiture, the world of fine art, and and things like that. So, what happened afterwards? You know, after you had those those weeks there, how did it sort of shift in terms of what your plans were for yourself? Well, I went back. That was pretty early on. That was ninety two. I should preface that. I, I, I mean. I, I'm not alone in this uh, at, for my age or somebody that came up in photojournalism. At that time, it was very well known that you needed to do a variety, not a variety, but uh, several internships to land at a newspaper in America uh, to learn the craft. So I ended up doing five altogether, three at newspapers, one at the White House in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. I was a White House photo intern. That was in 91. The next summer was Santa Fe. So I still hadn't done the newspaper stuff yet. So after oh, Santa Fe, I was like, if I'm going to, yeah. So after, I, I was like, even though I had all those other influences, I was like, if I'm going to land a job out of school, I got to get cracking on the newspaper stuff. Maybe it, if anything, it just got me more kind of directed to finding a way to shape my career outside of school. It still took a couple more years. I didn't graduate until I was 25. So what were you doing at the, uh, at the, at the White House? So that was in 91. It was under Bush Sr. and Dan Quayle's administration. I had been working at the college newspaper and Dan Quayle, Vice President Quayle, had come to our campus and I shot him um, for the paper. At that time, I, it was in the fall. Again, this is pre-Santa Fe. I was actively looking for my first newspaper internship and I met the White House photographer and he told me that they had an internship program and he handed me his card and it said, Stephen Purcell, vice president's photographer. Whoa. And he said, you know, the deadline's coming up. You should send us your work. So I did. And like, I don't know, a month and a half later, later, I got this crisp envelope in my mailbox office of the vice president opened it up and it said, dear Karen, we'd like to invite you to become a White House photo intern this summer in Washington, D.C. I was blown away and started preparing for that. I finished the spring semester, went out to Washington, got my first uh, apartment there with three other interns. You know, D.C. is the land of interns in the summer (laughs) from Capitol Hill to the White House. Oh, my gosh. What happened there at Berenix was a life changer. I went from being a college newspaper photographer, even with great Kentuckians, like from the Courier Journal and the Lexington Herald Leader around me to suddenly standing next to the New York Times and Time Magazine. And, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, there's David Kennerly or there's Steve Crowley or there's mm-hmm. Dirk Halstead, Chick Harity. And so all of a sudden, national news became a real thing that I could put a face to and understand how. Washington was covered. That really began my life in Washington in many ways. Since you were photographing for the White House, they had a different intention with the images as opposed to a newspaper. Mm -hmm. So how did that sort of fit in terms of what you, you did and what you were learning? Well, at the time, I believe I was 22. It was all about shooting. It was all about making images and covering these events. And it was less about what those images were used for, if that, if that makes any sense, as mm-hmm. opposed to like, 
oh, I'm working for a propaganda machine. It was like, no, my, my boss just assigned me to shoot the Queen's visit tonight or the visit of board. I shot, I had some huge assignments like that were pressure cookers. I had never been on a stage like that, you know, he, and he had just had a baby and he had already been on the scene for a few years. And it was like, you can handle this. I trust you. It, for me, it was, it was about fulfilling the job and understanding it as a historical moment that was going to be documented and preserved in the Library of Congress. It was the role of the White House photographer to make those images for history. Mm. And so I, at that time, I wouldn't say I was caught up in like, oh, this is a propaganda machine, which, you know, often White House photography gets labeled as. I was really concentrating on being a young photojournalist covering the White House. What was uh, one of the best moments that you had while there? I would say the Queen's visit at the Embassy of London. I was in a room alone with her for a couple seconds. Like how that happened, I have no idea, but I, <laughs> I tried to properly curtsy and say hello. And then I had to, I don't know, remember the, exactly the logistics, but I remember going back out into the main foyer, if you will, and all of a sudden President Bush Mrs. Bush, the Queen and Prince Philip came walking down that foyer. And I thought, wow, this is something else. Yeah. The visit of Boris Yeltsin that summer I was assigned to, and I was in the vice president's office with Vice President Quayle. And Boris Yeltsin comes in and <laughs> he looks at me. I was very young looking. I was very young, but I, I looked much younger than I was even at 22. And Vice President Quayle kind of caught him looking at me like, who's this young girl in here? What is she doing in here? And he goes, oh, sir, this is uh, this is Karen Ballard, our photographic uh, intern. She'll be taking our pictures today. And he held out his hand. And I, I'll never forget, I just felt like this large, like Russian hand of this world <laughs> leader shaking hands. And I was just going like, what is going on? All right, just play it cool here. So that visit the Queen's visit. And then Stephen sent me on one of Quayle's golfing outings. And this is kind of a funny story. I ended up in a country club's headquarters. And at that time, the journalist from the Post, Bob Woodward, was traveling with us, which, you know, legendary guy. He was working on that book, The Commanders, at the time that came out later. And uh, we're sitting there hanging out in this like, uh, you know, golf uh, dining room or something. And there was a backgammon table and I love backgammon. I'd played it luckily in Kentucky. And uh, he's like, you play backgammon? And I said, yes, I do. So I sat and played backgammon with Bob Woodward. That was pretty cool. cool. <laughs> All of that was that first summer in Washington. But there were a lot of magical moments, but those are some highlights. How long were you working as a photojournalist before you started transitioning to doing stills for motion pictures and television? I was in Washington full time for 16 years. That's starting out just before the job at the Washington Times. So 16 years, full time in Washington. But I started doing film work in 2005. So I spent six years at, after that post internship and the trip to Europe, I started at the Washington Times, the paper across town that had a fantastic and long history of a great photo department. It was second to USA Today. It was the first color photographic paper. 
and I was all about color. You know, I told you about going out to Eugene and learning Chrome and they shot Chrome at the Washington Times at that time. Uh, we eventually got into color negative. So I spent six years there and did a lot of politics, but also I was always trying to do the essays and I was always trying to do foreign trips and I really wanted to do magazine work. That's really what I wanted to do. And I always thought I would spend five or six years at a paper and I did. And uh, I went freelance in 2000 and I had plans to start my long form kind of international cultural stories. That's what I was really interested in doing. And 9-11 happened. And I had just been in China and gotten back. And in, in, in China, I had done work for Newsweek. You know, so was headed in that direction. And then 9-11 happened. And that really changed the course of my career because I had so much political experience and it was all about uh, it was a political story in many ways you know I started getting more and more assignments to do cover the White House cover international news not international cultural stories so much but the news side of it and so I did that for about four years for time Newsweek US News and World Report I made six trips to Iraq three to Afghanistan and as the Iraq war was really heating up on my last trip there, I spent six weeks there for time. And I ended up photographing the arraignment of Saddam Hussein, you know, after six trips. And also, you know, I had been in Afghanistan. I was in, embedded in Afghanistan. So I'd gone back and forth to these two countries where these wars were going on. I kind of had this like uh, moment of clarity leaving Baghdad the last time. At that time, you know, you had to go out the airport road, which was loaded with um, IEDs. It was incredibly dangerous and scary. And uh, so I was, I was on this press bus and I was sitting next to this Italian journalist and he said, you know, you seem really, I said, you know, I'm just, I had, I had been blown out of bed, my bed a few weeks earlier by a car bomb that had gone, gone off oh, wow. um, like two miles away. You know, I was on that bus and I just said, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm not sure this is for me. And he said, well, he said, Bella, just, just think of a cappuccino right now and we'll get you to the airport. And, you know, <laughs> I got back. I thought, you know, I didn't really sign up for this. I wanted to do culture and people and unique, different stories about the world. But I, I don't, I didn't really sign up to be a war photographer. And at that time, you know, my generation of really good you know, hard charging photojournalists, they were all becoming war photographers. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, uh, Chris Hondros was a, a good friend of mine. He is, he died. In fact, on that last trip in 2004, Chris and I were on the plane flying over together. And at the Baghdad airport, we hugged each other and I was going one way and he was going another way. And I never saw him again. Mm. That moment of clarity that I'm talking about happened. You know, when I got back, I was really thinking about my career and, um, I had been aware of movie stills or documenting movie sets back from that summer in Santa Fe, uh, starting with Mary Ellen. She did that. Yeah. And so that's kind of something I'd kept my eye on throughout those early years. And while I was in Washington and at the Washington Times, uh, one of my assignments was to photograph Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and Stephen Ambrose in a press junket rollout for Saving Private Ryan. 
I was given that assignment and and you get like two minutes with each of them, you know, it's like, oh my God, I've got to have two minutes <laughs> with Steven Spielberg, you know. But what happened in that exchange was I was given the, the press booklet and it was like this 30 page booklet of images from David James, who was the still photographer and Spielberg's longtime unit photographer of Private Ryan. <laughs> and, you know, here I had just been in a real the real war zones and I'm looking at this stuff and I'm going like, God, this photography is amazing. Of course, it's an amazing movie and all that. So I started thinking about that earlier on. I, I, I actually just, I made, I made a mistake. I had had that experience with the press booklet and all that earlier on. And when I got back, like whatever that year was when Private Ryan came out. But when I got back from Iraq in 2004, and was thinking about where to go with my career, I really started, and I had been a little bit anyway, poking around about how you get into this world of movie photography. Kind of a, sorry, that's a long answer. So I thought, you know, I wasn't sure that's what I was gonna do, but I started putting feelers out to other photojournalists and contacts in the business saying like, if you know anyone that wants a photographer, a photojournalist to do their movie work, I'd be very interested. Meanwhile, I applied for the Neiman Fellowship at uh, Harvard, and I was thinking, okay, I'll t- if I get this, I'll take a year off, and I can really explore where I want to go with my career. Because I knew I was at a, some sort of turning point in 2004. So I applied for it. I was a finalist. I got flown up to Boston, interviewed before the board, didn't get it. Mm. They gave it to a video journalist that year and that was the beginning of a lot of people going into video and I thought dang now what you know what's going to happen hey Baronex uh about a month later I got a phone call out of the blue saying you know we're looking for a photographer for a film for Steven Spielberg and we've gotten your name do you have a portfolio you can send us (laughs) are you serious (laughs) yes I do I sent the portfolio, FedEx my portfolio out to Los Angeles from Washington. And at that time I had all this current work in time and in Newsweek and whatnot. So, you know, including the arraignment of Saddam Hussein, including Tommy Frank's landing in Baghdad, that was a pool position, you know, those, both of those assignments, those pictures ran worldwide. And so my work was in the press anyway, those pictures were in the portfolio, along with all my other Washington work and cultural work, everything else. I thought, oh, well, we'll see what happens here. I was on my way to a music festival in, in Telluride, Colorado that weekend. So I sent the portfolio off. I went to Colorado and I thought, okay, we'll see what happens. Well, sure enough, in the middle of that music festival, 40,000, 50,000 people, my phone goes off and it's Los Angeles. And I thought, Oh my God, I got to get this call and I got to get out of here. So I run as far as I can from the music, far out the gate. I take the call and it's somebody from Kathleen Kennedy's office. And they say, is there any way you could be in New York on Tuesday? And I thought, oh my God, I'm flying back on Sunday night, get back to Washington on Monday, take the train up. Yes, of course, I can can be there. Uh, She would like to interview you. So get back, long story short, do that, take the train up, meet Kathy Kennedy. And we have this great exchange. And she says, well, Karen, Stephen is actually right around the corner. 
he is doing the rollout for War of the Worlds. So she was doing like the once over checking yeah. me out. She said, he'd really like to meet you in person. And I had no idea this was going to happen at all. I was like, you are kidding me. So she said, no, no, we wanted to take you over and introduce you. So I walk into this green room and sure enough, across the way, there's Steven with his ball cat on and his sunglasses. And she walks me over to him. She said, Steven, this is Karen Ballard, uh, the portfolio that you like. And he grabs my arm and he says, Karen, oh my gosh, I really love your work. I thought I was going to faint right there and then. <laughs> and he didn't, you know, this had nothing. He didn't, to this day, I don't think he remembers that I photographed him for the Saving Private Ryan rollout. It really never came up. It was just complete serendipity. He said, you know, if we hire you, you've got to be in Malta next Tuesday, a week later. He said, for a three-month shoot for the movie Munich. And he said, we're going to make a decision tonight. And I said, well, sir, I said, it would be my great honor to do that. And that's what we do. I said, I can hop on an airplane and be in Malta for you next Tuesday. That night I was having dinner uh, with some photo editors that I had worked, worked with that lived in New York. And I was telling the story and the phone rang and Kathy said, Karen, you've got the job. We, we want to hire you to be our unit photographer for Munich. And that's how it started. A week later, I was on an airplane to Malta, and uh, it was my first movie set, except for when I was a kid with like my, my mom and her crazy aunts in Louisville somewhere, or <laughs> Kentucky somewhere, but it literally, it was my first movie set, and it was a trip and a half. It was, th the first day of the shoot was a night shoot, so you didn't oh, have wow. to be there until like four o'clock, and I'm like, Oh my God. You can imagine how charged up I was. And so I get to the set, say hi to Steve and I get introduced to Janusz Kaminski. Kathleen's introducing me to people, the camera team. They get a real kick out of me because they're like, ha, your first movie is uh, for Spielberg. Don't get used to it. You know? And I mean, my God, has this story gone on for years now and with different camera crews and whatnot. I mean, and it's like, I know I didn't go to film school and I didn't work my way up the ranks like so many people in Hollywood do, but I had worked my way up the ranks in photojournalism and paid my dues there. And Steven knew that, you know, hmm. enough to hire me. I mean, he introduced me to everyone. I'll never forget like at th that night, you know, being a little timid about being by the camera or whatever. And I looked at him, I said, sir, I said, if there's anything special you need me to do or want me to do, or he goes, I want you to do what you do. Get in there. <laughs> and, and he pushed me and, and he pushed me right next to the camera. And that was the beginning. And, you know, he kind of trained me, you know, he kind of trained me on that movie. And um, I'll never forget it. And I'm always grateful. With the economy suffering inflation, you, you feel that deeper pinch in your wallet or purse, whether you're at the gas station or the grocery store. With so much dependence on our money that we earn, it's, it's easy to forget. You deserve something. Now, personally, I'm not big on clothes, jewelry, and fancy cars, but I do get happy when I get my hands on a new, great photo book. If I check the pricing on my collection, it's likely worth more than all the camera equipment I have. Though many of the books have increased in value, the wealth I derive from them 
is just priceless. Whether you are just starting your collection or have been doing it for years, I want to encourage you to subscribe to the Charcoal Book Club. Their selections are awesome and have introduced me to photographers I never would have heard otherwise. You'll enjoy a great new title every month when you become a Charcoal Book Club member. And if you don't like that month's release, that's okay. You can choose another of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code DCANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. It's really interesting because I've, I've known several photographers who have shot for motion pictures. And that initial experience is always about how hard do you push to get what you want, right? Because you're, you're never the priority as a still photographer. So it's kind of like you have to. Oh, God, no, not at all. Not at all. And I think that I've done well in it and, and hopefully continue to knock on wood. You know, having, having my background, uh, especially in the White House, I mean, my God, you do not want to be the person that accidentally knocks over a lamp in the Oval Office or, you know. Oh, God, yeah. And I had so many experiences in Washington that were so exclusive. I mean, I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time also at the Pentagon and, you know, so I've being around so many high profile people in Washington, I think really influenced how I personally handled movie sets and talent. So specifically what in terms of, is it about reading people, reading the room and sort of gauging how far you can go? What exactly what do you mean? I think it's absolutely that gauging whether the talent, you know, of course. Uh, and uh, I mean, I've done some pretty serious movies starting with Munich and some also some pretty action driven movies with heavy hitters like Tom Cruise. You know, it's like, OK, what's this going to be like and how? So it, it's reading it's it's reading the talent. It's reading the, the temperature of the set also of the director and their relationship with the talent, because if they feel like you're in their way, that's going to be a problem too. So I always look at the director as just as important, if not more important than the talent at times, you know, mm -hmm. because it's their project. And I'm always aware of the fact that this is their art. I'm here to document it for them. And I'm here to see what they're seeing, but hopefully give them something else. And Stephen taught me that too. He's, you know, I mean, and, but you do that. Any good photojournalist, especially if it's a news story, your goal is to capture the news. But once you get that, you want to try to get your own take on it. You know, yeah. that's how I work on a set. You know, I, I get the shots. I know the client needs the studio needs, but I'm always looking for my own moment for my own version of reverse light, you know, situation, maybe that sort of thing. And by reverse light, you mean what? The, so let's say the scene is beautifully lit for the talent. And I get that, but I may flip it around, go to the other side of the room and shoot it in reverse because I want to try to get a different angle or portrait or of the director, maybe Maybe once I have the scene, I will just spend some time watching the 
director do his or her, her thing, you know? So that's what I mean. Mix, mixing, up, mixing up the coverage. I really mm. feel like I cover it as a, as a story. So besides the director and the talent, who else is it good to become friends with? You, you know, you're all, I get asked who are you hired by, but oftentimes you're hired, hired by the line producer. So, of course, you want to deal with the producers. But that being said, it's really the other craftspeople. It's the camera team. It's the DP, number one. Number two, it's hair, makeup, costume. I mean, these people are often at the top of their game. You want to make sure that uh, you're representing in your work their talent as well. And I, my mom, uh, she's retired, but she was a hairdresser and a colorist growing up. And so I tend to always bond with the hairdressers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, uh, you know, and the other, but on set, it's it's the camera team. It's the grips. I mean, the, the key grip is so important. He can make or break your life. If And I, I have to say, I've worked with so many great people, but you know, just recently, I just finished the second season of Hacks, the HBO Max show, Great show that's out right now. And it's a terrific show. And, you know, there was a scene we did here in L.A. at the Well, we did many, you know, because it's a show about a comedian, there were many, many, many sets that are on stages. Right. Sometimes a stage can be super high. Right. And so they might have the camera team all on ladders. Well, I need to be. To be at eye level, I need to be on a ladder too. This is a really simple example, but it's an example of your question. Like, who do you, you know? And it's like, I went to see Randy, the key grip. And I said, Randy, I said, I know you guys are so busy. When you have a moment, can I please also have a 12-step ladder? Which, you know, somebody's got to go get out of the truck. So he's got to get on his walkie and say, like, bring one more 12-step in for our photographer. And, and of course, you know, he, he was like, Karen, of course, we're more than happy to get that for you. But it's little things like that yeah. that make your make or break a photo for, for you. You know, if I hadn't been at eye level, I'd be shooting up, you know, uh, you know, underneath Gene Smart. And that's never going to work. You know, it, it's really a, the greatest thing ever about filmmaking is it truly is. And I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious, but it is an amazing collaboration of people. Um, in for the Jack Reacher film, one of your images, I guess, was used for one of the poster designs. That's right. Do you know or have an idea that you know one of your images that you've taken is going to be used in that way, or is it just they just look at the pool of work that you've submitted and if they see something that that works, they'll use it for that purpose? It can happen twofold, and you always hope it's going to happen. You're kind of shooting for that, or at least I am. Like for example, I'll give I'll answer the Jack Reacher question, but like I just had a, a new movie poster come out for Mark Wahlberg's current movie called Father Stew. Oh, okay. I did not know if I was going to get the poster. A lot of times what can happen is you'll do all the unit coverage and they may pull still and make it a poster. And when that happens, it's magical. It's like, oh my gosh, that's so great. But a lot of times you can do all the unit photography and you'll find out when the movie poster comes out that they did a studio shoot with another photographer and that often happens. In the case of Jack Reacher, midway through the, the shoot, creative team came out to Pittsburgh. We were filming in Pittsburgh and they were on set one night and I was talking to one of the creatives from the marketing department and they're, they're in charge of the posters. 
And he said, well, he said, we're kind of looking for, of course, a hero shot, you know, so, you know, keep your eyes peeled for nothing. And it's, it's Tom Cruise, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we talked about some ideas that they had in mind. In that moment, that night, I pulled Tom aside and I did what we would call some specials, which is not him in the moment of acting, but maybe recreating a moment where I have him for like five minutes, literally. And I do some staged portraits in a way that I think would be a poster. That means it's going to be a vertical. It's going to be some tight portraits, medium, full length. And you do, I do all those kind of poses as fast as I can. And with somebody like Tom, it's like, he, he knows exactly what you're in. All the better, more experienced the actor, usually the easier it is. Honestly, mm. they know exactly what you're there for. They love the camera and they know you've been hired to capture their image. So I think my photojournalism skills too, of building a rapport with a subject mm-hmm. on set with building rapports with talent. I don't often start, I wouldn't start necessarily the first day of a shoot asking for a special or can I have five minutes of your time? You know, yeah. that would probably come a few weeks in unless of course I see something that I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I'm, you know, at this point I'm a very experienced photographer if I were to see something that I thought I had to ask for, I will, but I, I really don't. I really try to get everything in camera. And yes, I do some setup pictures, but most of the time my stuff is in camera. And if you look at the current Father Stu poster, those are two stills that were taken, you know, in action, mm-hmm. not, not set up. Yeah. yeah you know, it's, I, I, I've not done many celebrity portraits, but I've had a, a, a couple. And it's kind of surreal experience to frame them in my camera, have to having, having seen them on television and film. And a couple of times I go, oh, now I get it. Because within the frame of that camera, that person is basically loved by the camera. You know, it's just like. It's just, yeah, I know. And it's crazy. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I remember I did this movie in, was filmed in South Africa. It's it's on Netflix. It's a small indie film called The Siege of Jadoville, but it's with Jamie Dornan. Mm-hmm. And he he got popular for that 50 Shades series. Right. And I didn't know much about him other than that, but it turns out he he's very successful actor and all this. But I remember first time I saw him through my lens, I was like, Okay, he's got because I didn't really know of him, you know, he right. wasn't mm-hmm. Tom Cruise or Sylvester Stallone or Daniel Craig. And I had already shot all those guys. I mean, you get Stallone in front of your lens, you're like, oh my God, it's Rocky, right? <laughs> or it's Rambo. So this was this new guy that I hadn't really heard of, even though he had been in a really popular series and things like that. But I remember like, God, got that lens on him, and I was like, he's got that thing. And yeah. they're just and women. I mean, you know, Nicole Kidman. You, I mean, Jean Smart, who I just photographed. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, she is just amazing in front of the camera. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a mystery, but when they got it, they got it. You know. Yeah, for me, the experience was with John Travolta. I think it was in ninety two or ninety three, and I think this was before he had done Pulp Fiction. But that was the first mm. time I'd ever been in the presence of someone who had presence. Because you hear it all the time, right? Yes. And it's not about yes, it's not about them being handsome or beautiful. There's just something else. 
admit and he wasn't doing anything he was just kind of relaxing and i was just like oh i get it now no it's a it's a, i totally can relate to that does that make it harder or easier to make a photograph of them I don't know if it makes it harder or easier. It makes it exciting and wanting to make sure you capture that. For me, it's like, all right, here we go. It's funny. There's just certain people, like I've done a couple things with Nicole Kidman, and she's another one. She just turns toward the camera, and it's like, wow. you know. Mm. And I think whether it becomes harder or easier goes back to that in intuitiveness that you have to have. I think I'm a very intuitive person. I feel like I know when to not raise the camera, you know? Yeah. And I feel like I know when I have trust. And if I ever have a question, I'll ask. I'll say, are, are you good? So I did Quantum of Solace with Daniel Craig. Yeah. And that was my third movie with Daniel. And so, you know, he was in Munich, which was amazing. And then I did a small film with him called Defiance. And then I went on to do Quantum. And he was a fan of my work. He brought me on to quantum and this and that. And I remember we were in this scene. It was a fire scene with Olga Kurylenko, And it was going to be a crazy room of fire. Um, we're all in fire suits and everything and whatnot. But he, it was the only time he was like, he goes, KB, let me get, let me get one and then come back in. No problem. You know, I had already had that trust with him. What did he mean that, by that? He wanted the first take. I think he wanted just to not have an extra camera there in that kind of crazy space. Reese Witherspoon, same thing. Hey, KB, let me get this one and then come back in. Maybe they just have a moment where they they need to go through those lines once without a third camera right there. Also, those are like super, the, the situations I'm recalling are super intimate, super small spaces. That's the thing with film sets. You, you know, you don't always have the luxury of being across the room. I mean, you're wide on a 28, the camera right next to you is wide on a 24, whatever, 28, and the talent's right in front of you. As behind the scenes or invisible as you want to be, you're still a third or fourth body by talent. So I would say I've had a very good sense of when to walk away or back off, but generally speaking, I've blended in pretty well. How has digital changed it? Because you know, I think he probably started when they were still using film and using film blimps. And with digital, because you have the images there almost immediately, how what's the workflow like? Do you have the opportunity to keyword and process and send them off? Or do you have an opportunity to go through them yourself? It's funny. I started shooting digital in 2000 as a photojournalist. You know, we were pretty much the first adopters of digital. I mean, I think AP had the first digital camera after NASA or something. Yeah. And so I started shooting digital in 2000. And when I came to the film industry, I was already shooting digital. And when I shot Munich, I shot digital, but in a blimp, in a sound blimp, because I was still shooting an SLR camera. Okay. Yes. I was shooting uh, the early versions of the Marks, I think you know, the Canon Mark cameras, mm -hmm. 10D maybe or something, 5D oh, or something. I don't know. So I shot with the blimp up until the Fuji uh, mirrorless cameras came out in, I believe, 2016. And I think the Jadoville film, I'm not positive. I'd have to really look, but I think that was the first film I didn't use a blimp. 
which was the most freeing thing ever. I was back to my old self with just two cameras hanging off my shoulders and no sound blimp. And I have small hands, so I was really happy to get rid of that sound blimp because it's a big old brick in front of your head, you know. And No fun to use. Yeah, no fun to use. But I used it for all of my early films. I mean, gosh, my first, I don't know, 10 or 12 feature films, I used blimps for sure. But workflow is always uh, dependent upon the day schedule and the project. If you're on a project that's super fast, I mean, you know, everybody thinks you're always standing around waiting on a film set. Not necessarily. It depends on the project. It depends upon the director. Depends upon locations. There have been times, of course, where there's downtime on sets. But on a big action picture or a, a major, you know, film, you're busy, man. You're you're busy. So downloading happens when you have a minute. I think as I've gotten further along in this, I offload more than I probably did in the beginning in bet- when I do have downtime. But every unit photographer is different. Everybody has their own way of working. I think because, again, my background from photojournalism comes on is about following a, a story through. I kind of wait until the end of the day usually, and then I offload. And, and a lot of photographers do, but I've talked to so many different unit photographers who have their own way of doing it. But it really comes down to that particular picture or episodic and how the day is broken up, you know? For the last Bond film, like you said, they have like these really elaborate set pieces and mm-hmm. say everyone's very safety conscious and stuff like that. When you're dealing with a situation that's as complicated and nuances, photographing an action sequence, what do you have to be sensitive about other than making sure you don't hurt yourself or somebody else as a result of trying to take a picture? Well, safety first. You know, first and foremost, if there's ever any, if, you know, and I've done some crazy action movies. I mean, I shot the Expendables. I shot Rambo for the fourth iteration of Rambo. So safety, safety first. Uh, Yeah, I think he's, I think he's done another one since then. But the one I did was really cool because he hadn't done one in like, you know, 20 years. And we shot that in Thailand. But, you know, we're wearing fire suits, helmets, sound protection, goggles, all that stuff has to be worn, and I'm I'm pretty vigilant about that kind of thing. I feel like my even still, I feel like my hearing's been kind of <laughs> affected by a, a lot of these action movies. But safety around you, awareness of what is happening in front of you. You know, like maybe there's something that doesn't go quite right in a take, and I don't mean like a disaster, but I mean where the actor doesn't like the take and you kind of feel that. So it's like, all right, maybe that's not the one I'm going to turn in. So Mm. editing, you know, I turn in 95% of a shoot. I mean, but I get rid of something that I think they are not going to like this. You know, I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, that's, that's good. You know, you've talked about earlier about wanting to do long form storytelling about culture, culture and people working the way that you do. Do you still have the opportunity to, you know, flex that muscle? Well, I've spent uh, just over a decade working on this personal project about Venice, uh, California, Venice beach where I live. And that's been finally the personal project that I think I was always searching for from the beginning of my career, it's always like, well, you have to have a personal project. But when you're, you know, a working photographer, 
it's the hardest thing to pull off yeah. or at least it had been for me. And so part of me leaving DC and coming out here to Los Angeles was to work on a long-term project. And I wanted to do it in this little town that I first visited on my first trip with my parents to California, my older brother, Michael lived in Venice and I don't know what my parents were thinking, but when I was 16, they brought me out here from Louisville. And that was before I did that cross country trip. So anyway, when I finally made my way to LA, I had made several trips out here for meetings and whatnot. I always stayed in Venice and I had this vision that I would do a project about it. I did not know it would be over a decade's worth of work, (laughs) Uh, but here we are and I'm really excited about it there are any book publishers listening, I'm ready for your phone calls. But I'm going to start showing that work. I have a bit of it on my website now, but I really hope to get that published as a book, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, if not sooner. Oh, I look forward to seeing it. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Well, I know everybody says, Iberinex, that's really tough. <laughs> um, so I do I do want to mention two people. I hope that's okay. Yeah, I'll ahead. make it brief. The first one, I, I have to say Carol Guzzi, the photojournalist extraordinaire who's won four Pulitzers and has been in Ukraine now for almost three months. Mm. And if you're not following her, please follow her work. She is a legend of our time and she does extraordinary uh, work and she's doing extraordinary work right now. And then this is full circle, but my long admired and somebody that's probably influenced my career from the moment I met him and I discovered his work before I met him, but that's the great photographer, Sam Abel. Yeah. Sam was also a University of Kentucky graduate. He came to Lexington when I was a student there and in the throes of those various internships and this and that. And it was the year his book, Stay This Moment, was published, which was 92. I was, like I said, I was already way into like shooting for the paper. And I had already been to Washington as a White House intern and whatnot. And I got that. He gave me that book when he visited campus. And that book and the rest of his books have, you know, long held a place in my heart and I think influenced my work, yeah. um, his color palette, his compositions, etc. So that's, that's the guy. And those two have the biggest hearts. I love the both of them. I love them both so much. And they both have influenced me and been great friends. And they just continue to give back to the community. They continue to create great work. And uh, I've been blessed to know them. Well, I've been blessed to get to know you today, and this is probably the longest time we've had a chance to talk, but I hope we can do it again. You're not that far from me. I know. I know. I thank you. I'm such a fan of your show. After we met, when I met you, I had not known of your show. Oh, okay. And so after meeting you, I yes, I dove into the candid frame, and I've enjoyed so many episodes. So thank you for your work and, and your photography. It's beautiful. Oh, I love seeing you. your uh, posts on Instagram. So All right. Good seeing you. Okay. Mexico's Day of the Dead event 
is one of the country's most colorful and exciting cultural events. Parade, parties, performances, and graveyard celebrations are all over the place. It is the perfect opportunity for a workshop. Photographer Chris Suspect will be your host for this experience, and he'll provide you a way to have a complete photographic and personal experience. You'll enjoy a personal portfolio review, lectures by native Mexican photographers, and meals at some of Oaxaca's best restaurants. The workshop is scheduled for October 28th through November 4th, and slots are limited. Sign up soon by visiting chrissuspect.com forward slash the candid frame. We can also do with your financial support if you enjoy the work that we're doing here. Each episode requires a lot of time, effort, and resources, and your donations help to make the show possible. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. And if you've been thinking about doing this for a while, but have never gotten around to it, why not take the time to do it today? It would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for your continued support. Thanks to Karen for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting KarenBallard.com. And if you're a fan of our work here, you can support us in a variety of ways. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And you can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Jonathan Botkin, Patricia Parmelo, Justin Hyde, and David Colby for their generous contributions. And if you can't find every episode of The Candid Frame on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download The Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.